The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. You have to think about Magi as kind of a combination of a modern-day scientist and an astrologer. Okay, In other words, learned men who read a lot, who studied nature, but as Emperor Palpatine might say, you know, had a pathway to many abilities some considered to be unnatural as well, okay? Astrology being uh, one of these aspects. They were from the east, somewhere area east of Judea, probably Babylon, which would be uh, in modern-day Iraq. And they start, they show up in Jerusalem, and they start to go around town saying this, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, For we saw his star when it rose, or in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, again, this statement assumes that the birth has already taken place. And the interesting thing to note here is that they've somehow concluded that a new king of the Jews has been born. And the reason for this is astrological. They saw something bright in the sky. Now, there has been a lot of speculation over 2,000 years about what this is. First of all, is it natural? Is it supernatural? If it's natural, what is it? Now, the, you know, the, the Greek word star just means any bright, small, bright thing in the sky. So, you know, in their culture, that could be a planet, could be a star, could be a nova, could be a comet, could be any of these things uh, naturally. Kepler thought it might be Saturn in the constellation Pisces, because that constellation was sometimes associated with the Jewish people. Some think it might be a comet or a nova. Some of you perhaps remember the Star of Bethlehem documentary that came out in 2007, maybe, uh, where Frederick or Rick, Rick Larson uh, concluded it was Jupiter that was involved in some retrograde motion around the star Regulus in the constellation Leo. Only problem with that theory is that only took place in 3 BC or 2 BC, where it, which is after when most people think Herod died. So lots of theories about what this could be. You want me to lay my cards on the table? And this is speculation. This is not from the text. I think it was more supernatural than natural. But here's the central point. There was some significant, unusual light in the sky that these magi associated with something wonderful happening in the land of Judea. Enough that they wanted to set out and find who this new king was. That's what we know. So, off they go. And they want to go worship the king. Okay, so it's probably the Magi concluded that there was something divine or divinely inspired about this birth. Um, So off, off they go. And I wanted to point out the grace of God in this, because fundamentally, it's God who does this. God puts some light in the sky, whatever it is, in such a way that he knows these people are going to interpret that as something great happening, enough that they make this arduous journey all the way over from Babylon to Judea. And that is honestly a sign of God's grace. Because we know from the Old Testament that God condemns astrology. He actually mocks astrology, because in Isaiah 47, 13, he says... Let those stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens. You know, in the sense that uh, who gaze at the scars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. He's saying those things can't save you. 
astrological conclusions can't save you. But nevertheless, by his grace, because he wants to draw these magi to himself, he allows them, he gives them a sign through their system, false as it is, that they can seek him. It kind of reminds me of those, a couple of those testimonies I've heard over my life of people being so scared about what they saw using a Ouija board that it actually caused them ultimately to turn to Christ. Okay? This is what God is doing in his grace. And again, it aligns with our Old Testament passage because it's showing how God fulfills his promise to be a light to the Gentiles. So Matthew's inviting the listener here, you and I, to put ourselves in the Magi's shoes. Are we going to make an eager search for Jesus too? Well, guess what? You know, we can't do that geographically. Jesus isn't here. There's no place we can go and see Jesus. So how do we seek Jesus? And I think what we start to get a sense of is verses like where Jesus is saying, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. And that's in the context of prayer. So I think if we look at Scripture and we see how Jesus is asking us to seek, today it is in the context of what some you know, Christian traditions will call the spiritual disciplines. We seek Jesus through a set of tools that he's given us through which we create space for him to show up in our lives and do great things. I'll just give one brief illustration. One book I love about you know, the disciplines is um, Dallas Willard's Spirit of Disciplines. Again, it's a book. It's not scripture, but it's a good one. And if you're kind of struggling with how to create those spaces where God can show up in your life. Uh, and on page 158, um, Dallas Willard's got a great list of various disciplines we can be involved with, which again creates space for us to seek God and for God to show up. And he kind of divides these into two categories, which may or may not be helpful. But he talks about disciplines of abstinence or where we give something up like solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy. That means where we do something, we don't tell the people we did a good deed, sacrifice, and disciplines of engagement, study and worship and celebration and service and prayer and fellowship, confession and submission. So I just want to illustrate in one way. Um, you know, preachers like me, I'm sorry to say, we often focus on the fact that no spiritual life can be successful without regular engagement with, particularly with God's word and prayer. And I know you've heard this message before from other people. I know basically many people harp on it, and I hate to be a broken record here, but the unfortunate thing is there really is no other means. I had a seminary professor say the quality of your spiritual life is in, in prince, you know, it, it primarily going to be informed by just how much you engage with God words, God's word and prayer. It, it really is that simple. And I think we get tripped up because, you know, as people, we get bored. And we're also just good at certain things and not good at other things. Some of us like to read. Some of us don't like to read, right? But I think, you know, perhaps the one piece of practical advice we can give in all this is just, um, you know, shake it up. <laughs> Try to keep it not boring. Um, for those of you who may have ever had been trained under the navigators, for example, you know that we've got this great... Uh, word hand analogy that they come up with. And they say, there's five things that you can do with the word of God. And they start with the pinky. You can hear it, you can read it, you can study it, you can memorize it, and you can meditate upon it, which means to, to basically take a verse and then start comparing that verse to your life. You know, where am I in line with that verse? Where am I not in line with that verse? So 
um, are you bored about reading through the Bible ever? Yeah, have you been reading through the Bible in a year for the last 10 years? And it's just getting like, oh, I've got to read through the Bible again. Maybe this is a year for memorization. If you're, are you not a reader? Do you have earbuds? Can you listen? You know, and I think I have to challenge myself on that as, as well, too, because by temperament, I love study. Maybe I don't like meditation as much. Right? Shake it up. All right. So Matthew is shown by positive example an eager search for King Jesus. And basically, you know, the principal way we seek Jesus now is through these spiritual disciplines where we create space for God to work. Okay? But he's now going to show by negative example the, a fearful loss to King Jesus or a fear of loss to King Jesus, which is the second point on our outline. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So word gets to Herod that some people are going around town asking where the king of the Jews has been born. And that troubles Herod because he happens to be the incumbent in that position. Okay? There's a challenge. The word trouble means acute emotional distress or turbulence, mental distress. So he is mentally disturbed by this. Interestingly, Herod does not appear to reject the possibility that this is actually true, that there has been a king of the Jews born. Clearly, he sees a plausible threat to his reign. Historians tell us that by this time in life, Herod become paranoid to hold on to power. Uh, by this time, he's killed his favorite wife, and he's killed at least two of his sons in fear that they were plotting against his rule. So this is kind of Herod's state of mind at this time in his life. All right. And uh, Caesar Augustus famously quipped, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son, because in Judea you don't eat pigs. So a pig has a better chance of being alive than a son of Herod does, right? But if Herod's going to remove this threat, and we know from this passage that you'll be covering next week that he plans to remove the threat by killing Jesus, he needs information. He needs to know where Jesus is, and when Jesus was born, in order to know about how old he is. Where's the child? When was he born? So we get to verses 4 through 6. And first, so he first, he ascended, sorry, verses 4 through 6. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The chief priests were the religious rulers of the day. The scribes were the experts in the Old Testament scripture. Think about scribes as kind of a combination of a modern-day professor and lawyer. Okay, So he's calling in the top guns, the leadership and the scholars, and he's saying, where? And they say, Bethlehem. So now Herod has at least a general where. Um, and it's, in passing, it's probably worth noting that Matthew doesn't describe any effort of the chief priests or the scribes to actually follow up on the Magi's claims. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. The text doesn't say. But perhaps by implication, Matthew wants to put us, the listeners, into their situation as well. How do we react to King Jesus? Are we indifferent? Are we dismissive? Who knows? But now we get to verse 7. Okay, second group Herod brings in to get the when. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
The reason it's done secretly, of course, is because Herod does have these plans to kill the child, and he doesn't want to let on about these plans. And the word ascertained in Greek talks about a very careful means of acquiring information, exact and accurate. He wants to know precisely when this star appears because his assumption is that is the time that the birth actually took place. And they likely said a bit over a year ago because in next week's passage you'll learn that Herod has all the male children around Bethlehem killed two years and younger. So he's kind of covering his bases to cover that time span. Okay. He's almost certainly basing that timeline on the information he got from the Magi here. So, Herod now has an approximate where and an approximate when, but this still isn't enough to identify one specific boy. So Herod says, verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And again, we know this is a ruse. We know this is a deception because of what he did in the next uh, passage that you're going to cover next week. But he needs to know exactly where that child is. In summary, all Herod can do is focus on what he might lose to King Jesus. Are there times in our own life where we seem to be stuck focused on what we will lose or what we may lose to King Jesus. And of course there are. Of course there are. There are times we regret being here on a Sunday morning knowing that our neighbors are in bed. There are times when we're doing our taxes at the end of the year and we're saying, boy, that giving could have really led to a nice family vacation. There are times when we stay in a painful relationship because we feel Christ wants us to do it rather than just getting out. Yeah. They're caught, and some of you may even be considering whether to follow Christ. And one of those hang-ups might be an overwhelming sense of what you might have to give up in order to follow Christ. So how do you think Jesus feels about this when we have these moments of just fearing the cost of following Jesus? First of all, I think he understands. It's he himself who says, count the cost. Remember Luke 14? Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So Jesus understands this. Jesus understands this feeling. So what do we do when we're overwhelmed with a sense of what we have to give up to follow Jesus? Well, I think the disciples show us we bring that fear to Jesus. Remember Peter's cry to Jesus in Matthew 19? See, we have left everything to follow you. At least Peter was doing the right thing. He was taking that concern to Jesus. Be like Peter. Go to Jesus with that concern. May also be profitable this afternoon to look up what Jesus' answer was to Peter's concern. Okay, so 
Matthew's given us a positive example of the eager search for Jesus, and he's given us a negative example of somebody who's just completely hung up on what he's going to lose to King Jesus. We can now return to a positive example, and Matthew shows us the joyful worship of King Jesus. And I might actually rephrase that a little bit in light of, uh, in light of my uh, reading of this over the next couple days. The joy-fueled worship of Jesus. Uh, point three on the outline, uh, joyful worship or joy-fueled worship of King Jesus. So picking up in verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Notice again, it's a child, not a baby. It's a house, not a stable. So it's sometime after, you know, months or, or, or a year or so after the birth. Okay, but off they go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Now, again, there's a lot of speculation. Is this star natural, supernatural? Again, I'll just put my cards out on the table and I'll say, in my opinion, there's no natural phenomenon that does justice to the text here because in my opinion, what the text is saying is it's talking about the light actually appearing to move before them and then come to rest over a specific house. Uh, remember, it's just a five mile distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, so it would be hard to see how something in the sky could you know, make any difference in, in terms of this. And I'll also just say, and again, I wanna point out this is speculation, that my particular you know, reading of the text is actually probably there was some light in the sky when they were in Bethlehem, and they saw it, and it made them think, oh, there's something big happened in Judea, and then it probably went away, and I think the word behold in this text is saying that it now reappears, because you might ask, well, this was such a big deal, how come nobody else saw it? Well, in my opinion, it was in Babylon, they saw it, it caused their journey, and now the wonder of this is exactly what they saw in Babylon has now reappeared, and it's now leading them towards Bethlehem, but again, that's speculation, take it or leave it, but... The point here is, it was enough of a phenomenon that it created an intense emotion. And that is, they rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. Basically, what the text is saying here is, it created to them a sense of joy which is greater than its maximum joy. It's the most joy you can feel. Okay, so think about those times in life where you've experienced the most joy that you can feel. Maybe it's when you proposed to your girlfriend and she said yes. Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was getting into a school you wanted to go to. Maybe it was winning a state championship. This is the type of joy Matthew is talking about, great joy. And what the joy does is it, by nature, creates a desire to worship. The joy creates the desire to worship. So they fall down, which is a verb of falling down to the ground, actually laying down on the ground, and they basically fall down to this child, which indicates, you know, it's a posture of saying, I am less in rank than you are. I am subservient to you. I now am under your control, under your leadership. Uh, so people kind of wonder, you know, did they actually come to saving faith in Christ here? Again, text doesn't say, so I can't say definitively. My opinion, yes, this was enough of a wondrous thing that they did come to saving faith. Um, now, worship 
has a lot of different senses, as you know, in the New Testament. Sometimes it's more narrowly praise. Sometimes it talks about sacrifice. And there's a whole number of words that are used in, 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 in the New Testament to talk about worship. So, for instance, we can talk about Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the sacrificial aspect, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, again, different words than worship than we've got here, but it gives the idea that worship can kind of go anywhere from the idea of praise all the way to basically this sacrificial yielding of oneself to the service of Christ. And indeed, you know, we see that that's what they did here because resuming in the verse, the middle of verse 11, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, treasures in this case means a treasure box. They had a treasure box. They open it up. Gold, frankincense, mere. Gold's expensive, always has been. Mere, frankincense, kind of depends on the quantity and the quality. It could be cheap, could be expensive, but the implication here is this was good quality stuff, so it was expensive because it came out of a treasure chest. And here we see the contrast between Herod and the Magi, because guess what? The Magi had a cost here too. They actually left this house materially poorer than when they got there. They had less gold, less myrrh, less frankincense, okay? But they didn't seem to care, right? And the reason they didn't seem to care is because the joy had overcome the cost of following Jesus, okay? And lastly, one reason I think that God is actually, that they are now serving the true God, is lastly, by, by divine warning, because the warning here implies that the actor is God, they're told not to return to Herod. And this is not only a grace to Jesus to preserve his life, but it's also a grace to them, so they don't go back to Herod and potentially get their heads cut off by, by Herod, Okay? So, just to summarize this whole passage, I want us to see the chain of causality here. God does something by putting a light in the sky in the east that causes them, God knows it's going to cause them to interpret it, that something great has happened in Judea and a new king has been born. So, God initiates something. Then there is a human response of seeking they actually go and seek. And then God gives another sign which creates joy. And then from that joy, it causes them to spontaneously worship. God's call, human seeking, God granting joy, outflow of worship. That's the chain of this particular passage. Um, there is a relationship uh, between God and joy. Uh, and when we understand the chain of causality here, that we realize that God is doing something wonderful in our lives to lead us to that point that we feel that we can serve and worship Jesus. Um, in my own life, I actually believe I was saved watching a Billy Graham special on TV when I was about 12 years old. Believe it or not, back in the day, they used to have Billy Graham on TV. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Organization would actually buy time on network television during a crusade, and he'd be on TV. And I can remember, don't know why the TV was on, 
Uh, but I remember watching the TV. I remember Billy Graham talking about we're sinners, we're under God's wrath, Jesus died for us, but we've got to make a decision for Christ. I remember the gospel, and I remember praying the prayer. Okay? The fantastic thing about this is, and again, I was probably around 12, so I don't have great memories of this, but my one uh, remaining memory of that event was just the, an overwhelming sense of joy I felt. Um, I can remember just being incredibly excited, uh, which was probably the work of the Spirit now indwelling me. Through the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Right? Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, in conclusion, we see Matthew is challenging us. Who are we going to be like? Are we going to make the eager search for King Jesus? Are we going to get trapped and hung up in the fear of loss to King Jesus? Are we going to engage in the joy-fueled worship of King Jesus? And I would say Matthew is basically prompting us, you know, go with one and three and skip two. You know, that's basically what I think Matthew's trying to tell us here. Let me end with this illustration. We all worship what gives us joy. It is human nature. God has hardwired that into us. We all naturally worship both the narrow sense of praise and the broader sense of sacrifice to those things that give us joy. One of the most culturally significant events of the past year, I would have to say, is probably the uh, Eras Tour, <laughs> Taylor Swift Eras Tour, okay? And I've talked to some people who tried to get the tickets, and it's amazing what they have to go through. I'm not, okay, no judgment. Maybe somebody here has tried to do it too, but evidently, you know, you got to set up an account on Ticketmaster, and then you basically get an email telling you if you're in the, uh, you know, the purchase group or the waitlist group, and if you're waitlist group, you have to check for another email because you might get off the waitlist group, and then 30 minutes before the time opens to buy the tickets, you've got to go into a wait room. And then you get into the queue, and then you're in the queue, and to that, evidently there's some sort of count. I haven't done it, so I may be off on some details here. But, but, you know, then you get into the queue, and then basically you wait in the queue, and you're not supposed to refresh your browser screen because then that might kick you out of the queue to a lower spot in the queue. And then ultimately, if you go through all this process, you might be blessed at the end by being able to purchase up to four uh, tickets. Okay? All right? That's a search. But for those who have gotten the tickets, I have some family members who have actually gotten the tickets, the joy is incredible. And that yields praise, and then that yields sacrifice. Oh, now we've got to get a hotel room. Now we've got to get uh, transportation lined up, or maybe airfare to go there. It's like... But there doesn't seem to be any apparent sense of loss in all this. Rather, it's joy. So again, seeking joy, worship. That's human nature. That's just naturally how it is. Friends, someone greater than Taylor Swift is here. And that person is Jesus. 
Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy, paraphrasing, may be 100% full. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to take to heart what you're trying to teach us in this passage. To seek you by putting ourselves in those positions where you can show up. By allowing you to cultivate that joy in the heart that we need for joy-fueled worship. And by giving to you those times where our hearts are consumed by a fear of loss to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.